Elliott Hospital recently unveiled a new state-of-the-art emergency room and launched a partnership with New England College to graduate more nurses. We speak with the CEO of one of New Hampshire's largest hospitals about what it takes to meet the needs of a growing and changing population. I'm Matt Mowry, Executive Editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, Chief Growth Officer of Granite Media Group and founder of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. So Nathan, as we are uh, going to be talking a lot about healthcare today, um, I'm up to date on my shots. Yes. Oh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> so many avenues I want to go down on that one, but I won't. But I won't. Um, but let's talk a little bit about sickness in the workplace, oh. right? That's always been a big topic. You know, pre-pandemic, there was always that urge to, you know, work through, to push through. Yeah. Um, there was some recognition there that, you know, well, maybe not coming in and making the whole office sick is a better thing. <laughs> Post-pandemic, we are, um, or in the endemic stage that we're in, it's a, you know, it seems like it's evolving and changing and people are getting a handle on it. Um, but, I, you know, I also wonder, as we're more remote, mm. are people willing maybe to push through sickness more when they should be giving their bodies a rest? Because, well, I'm home and I've got work to do anyhow. Are expectations of bosses changing? Like, where where do things land around there as yeah. we we it's just one of those new realities we were traversing i see i don't know i mean i i've had um sort of examples of of both sides of that coin where you know like a a staff member will will reach out and say i like i am sick today and i am not doing anything and i'm like that's great you should take care of yourself that's always the first response like just take care of yourself you know and and we'll talk tomorrow or whatever it is check in um but then the other side of it is well maybe they want to work you know part of the day and then just have a you know less intense afternoon or or something like that so it's yeah i i don't know i i guess i'm just sort of um I, yeah i i'm just i i see the i see what people are are doing and what they're experiencing and i guess it's could just be that it's even easier to take care of yourself because you don't have to go in in our case especially as we're um, remote yeah right with our remote staff they don't have to go to an office so if they're okay with like you know being a little bit boogery or having an upset tummy or whatever it is for the day but getting some work done and and being productive then that's that's great and they make that decision because they're the ones that are like hey this is what I'm doing and um I like that. On the other side of the coin, I mean, not everyone's remote. And, you know, now I think, you know, there, I would think more emphasis on if you are sick, Mm. please stay home. Yeah. Because even if it's a cold, Mm -hmm. nobody wants it. If you're there with a runny nose and the watery eyes, everyone around you on a high alert and they're wondering, like, did you take the test? Was it a reliable (laughs) test? What are you going to give me? That's the thing now is like, we don't know. Uh Yeah, we don't know what you, you say it's just the sniffles, but maybe that's the onset of something that you need to test for. Mm. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's something, you know, the whole question around sick days is changing and evolving, including um, more encompassing of mental health. Mm. And, you know, it used to be the joke, like, are you really sick or you just need time off? But, 
I think there's more realization that sometimes people have just reached a limit. And yeah. do you use the vacation day when you need that downtime? Do you use a sick day? Mm. What is the definition of sickness? Yeah. You know, what is the definition of why you need to take a break? Is it just for physical health? Is it okay to do mental health? Is your boss going to be accepting of that? Yeah. There's so much, you know, you would have thought that this would have clarified things. And yeah. I think, you know, for a bit it did. And now we're back into some murky waters of companies really trying to work out. Right. Is it just, you know, and, and that, I think that's why we've gone to more of a time off package deal. Right. Rather than having separate your sickness, your sick time and your vacation time. It's right. like, here's what you have and take it. Well, and also like as, as an employer, like, well, or as an employee, um, I feel like they shouldn't have to. We do this thing where, you know, whether it's in an, a, an out of office message or a voicemail or a phone call to the boss, and it's like, well, I'm not feeling well, or I have to do this, or I need. No, it's just like, tell me you're taking the time off. And, and that's have okay. a plan, right? And, and, and just have a plan, right? Like, I don't care if it's that you're sick or that you need the time to, for yourself or that a kid needs something, just take it. You know, that's kind of the, that's my mentality anyways. Like, just take it because you are the one that knows best about what is is needed. But you're right. Like, there's now there's all these situations. We're not just remote. There's all these situations and you've got to consider both sides and you've got to consider the work plan too because these are employees and they have goals and they have things that they need to accomplish. So it's, whew. I think there's a B&H article in there. I think maybe there is. <laughs> but instead of exploring that, let's let's get down to yeah. business with our, our yeah, guests this is, today. This is exciting. So really being in the in the thick of the health care, as it were. Um, our guest this week is Dr. Greg Baxter, president of Manchester-based Elliott Health System. Dr. Baxter has been with Elliott Health System since 2003, when he joined to lead the emergency physician provider group. He was then named vice president of medical affairs, serving as a liaison to the medical staff. Elliott Board of Directors and Management. In 2009, Dr. Baxter was appointed Chief Medical Officer and has served in that role, leadership role, for nine years. While serving as Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Baxter was also named the Elliott Health System Senior VP of Medical Affairs. He has spent the last 20 years at Elliott dedicated to growing an extraordinary medical group, expanding needed client services, servicing the community through the practice of emergency medicine, educating himself and the board in healthcare trends of the future, and the potential strategies to allow for greater access and higher quality care. It sounds like you're a real stand-up guy, Dr. Baxter. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's our pleasure to have you. Um, Let's do this. Let's start here. Set the stage for our listeners. Give them your pitch, as it were, to what the Elliot is and how it's integrated with and supports the greater Manchester community. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me today. It's our pleasure. Uh, the Elliot, uh, it's been around over 130 years. First community hospital in New Hampshire, uh, formed by the uh, will of Mary Elliot uh, in 1889. And... Uh, it's a, it's a real humbling experience to uh, have been selected to lead the health system in 2018, uh, not knowing what was about to happen two years later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I, I might have uh, been a little more circumspect about that <laughs> offer. Uh, and so uh, that cherished 130-year Greek history, it's really amazing that uh, the Elliot's been a comprehensive health provider, really from its inception. And... Um, in my 20 years with the Elliott, I've watched us continue to grow services to be that both largest and most comprehensive center. So everything from uh, neonatology services. So unfortunately, if you uh, 
are new parents and uh, your child is in distress, we have a level three neonatal intensive care unit. It's been around since the late 80s. People well before me thought it was a great idea of Manchester should have that resource in the community. And then all the way through our senior health services, which include uh, geriatric psychiatry, uh, geriatricians, and our senior health center on Webster Street, uh, and really everything in between, every type of pediatric and adult uh, specialty for the most part is available at the Elliott. Uh, we're very lucky to have pediatric emergency department, pediatric surgery, gastroenterologists and other specialists, as well as a whole host of the adult medicine uh, resources that we brought to bear. So really an uh, interesting place that uh, Elliot fills a great role in our community. And we find great partnership with both other you know, healthcare providers, as well as all the other not-for-profits and governmental agencies that we work with on a daily basis. And so, you know, we know what the pandemic brought, you know, <laughs> had you had a crystal ball, like you said, knew what, what, what two years down the line was going to mean. Um, but I think, you know, for a lot of folks, the, obviously the pandemic was a hard time. And then, you know, the slow recovery began. And then, you know, there was this rush to get back to normal. And for a lot of people, they were able to reclaim that normalcy. But can you talk about what that what it's like currently for the healthcare industry and what perhaps the fallout of the pandemic has meant. What are some of the challenges that hospitals continue to face as a result of what this um, huge uh, health uh, scare and pa- uh, uh, pandemic d- did to our healthcare industry? Yeah, it's really hard to actually uh, compartmentalize the effects of the pandemic, but I'll give it a shot. Um, I think there's a real pull for people to get back to what they used to know. Right. Mm-hmm. And nostalgia is a, mm. is a really uh, cruel mistress. It makes you think <laughs> of a lot of things that really actually weren't true in 2019 and 2020, mm-hmm. but you, but you, uh, you pine for those. You really wish you could get back there. So I think it tells us that uh, healthcare is always evolving. It was always changing. But the acceleration of change in the pandemic was shocking. Uh, as I said, I was you know, a year and a half, two years into being the CEO for Elliott and a great team. Uh, and we turned off healthcare. I mean, parts of the hospital doesn't have locks on the doors because it never closes, right? So that's right. the analogy. We don't mm. close things. Um, we did. I'm an emergency medicine physician by background, so it was a very foreign concept for me that we were actually going to shrink our services. It goes against the grain, right? Do right. less and intentionally do it. Turn it all off. And then in six or eight weeks, we realized, turn it back on. But it wasn't really back on. It was back on... Um, without, you look back at it now, without an ability to run a COVID test on yourself. At that time, it took nearly an act of God to get a test to actually run at a lab somewhere if you could make the case for why your particular patient needed that test to run on them. Right. Uh, so you, you forget all of those things. Mm-hmm. As that pandemic uh, pressure built, then it went away in the summer, as you all recall, and it came back with mm-hmm. a vengeance that winter. Um, and about two winters in a row, we could see this sort of snowball rolling towards us, right? And very limited options for what to do. Because as you know, many people had put off care. So they were behind in both their healthcare maintenance, elective or scheduled procedures, things that you know could be a painful condition or whatever they were looking to accomplish or their physicians and they were looking to accomplish, all pent up demand. At the same time, the stress of the pandemic and what became a hyper, if you will, politicization of a lot of things made it hard to do the work. Uh, we would have um, new issues with patients we had never anticipated. Uh, a mask mandate. Well, if you're, some people just didn't think they worked. Uh, 
and didn't want to wear them, but they wanted to come to our hospital. So all these stresses and pressures built up on the staff. I think that we've done a couple of things. So workforce challenges are the biggest challenge we face. We're right. a very heavy labor-intensive industry with a razor-thin margin, even in the best of cases. And, and a workforce that, to some extent, got burnt out during these last few years. They, they were... Um, the interesting thing was we were talking about burnout in 2017, mm-hmm. 2018, 2019. Oh, and the pandemic came. And for a little <laughs> while, um, burnout actually went away because you felt like we were so stripped down to what was only important for patients mm-hmm. as far as documentation, other uh, regulations and such, that it felt a little refreshing. But the actual amount of care you had to deliver, the unknowns about COVID when it first came, right. and it came in multiple waves, a first few waves very much different than the, the ones that followed, real challenge for the staff. And a number of people voted with their feet. They said, this is not something I can do. Now, thankfully, some went from acute care hospital-based services to office-based practices or maybe even doing remote work. Um, so still part of the healthcare landscape. But we took a significant hit on the people who would... You know, they were banging pots and pans for us in 2020. And by 2021, it was a little less robust. And by 2022, it was, um, why can't I have my healthcare on demand like mm-hmm. I used to have it three years ago? And we're missing 20% of our staff. Um, and it ran across the spectrum. Nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, you name it. Some thought, boy, this is my life's calling and I'm going to dig in even deeper. And thankfully, that was the majority. And a number of them said, I think maybe I just need to try something different. So one of the things we talk about is how not to apologize for being in healthcare. Uh, you know, I have kids who are 22 and 21, and uh, the refrain I hear from them and their friends and other people I meet at that age group is they want to make a difference. So I'm like, well, join healthcare. I can't think of something you could do that's more impactful in your community uh, at a level that's accessible to vast numbers of citizens who want to join healthcare. They don't have to be frontline care providers. Sure, there's the doctor, the nurse, the physician assistant, nurse practitioner, respiratory therapy. There's lab services, radiology, uh, patient service reps, uh, and all the supporting functions across the health system. So, and all of that contributes to us actually taking care of our community. So when I hear people talk making a difference, I think it's actually a pitch uh, from HR to recruit people. <laughs> That's nice. great. And, and so what does it take now to recruit folks into healthcare and to, and to compete. And especially when you're one of the few hospitals in the state that has a direct competitor right in your community. Uh, great point. So a few years ago, we had the opportunity to really look at our wage structure. Um, and it's not all about wages, but to create a $17 an hour minimum across Elliott Health System and our partner organization, Southern New Hampshire Medical Center, which comprised Solution Health, really set the standard for if you will, lower uh, Southern New Hampshire as far as what the entry-level wage would be. Mm-hmm. That gave us a significant competitive advantage. Um, and I'm suspecting that most of the organizations probably chased that number, and there's now a new uh, low limit, if you will, in healthcare for entry-level. At the same time, that position has to be compared with, for the person who's applying, um, what's the level of stress I'm willing to endure? What types of hours do I need? And if I'm going to compare it uh, for the same dollar an hour at Target or Walmart or somewhere else, you know, how does that work for me? And again, I come back to, uh, I don't apologize for that. I welcome you to come on in. You'll, you'll leave at the end of the day feeling as though you, you made a difference. 
you've, you've served your fellow man. And if that's the kind of thing that you want to do, then we're the place for you. Uh, if you'd simply like to do the least amount you can do uh, and go home and maybe go home five minutes early, it might be the right place for you, but probably not because your, your teammates are expecting you to be there at 100% uh, every day. I, in your banter when we first got going, you were talking about uh, the culture of coming to work sick. And um, you know, now I'm in my mid-50s, and I can tell you I'm of the, of the age where kids get attendance records, right, for having never missed school. Uh, how crazy is that? Right. right. They were definitely sick when they came to school. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Right. I mean, how many of us went to work jacked up on Sudafed and NyQuil and oh, everything yeah. else? And oh, yeah. I'm not sure the kind of decisions I was making. I'm really, <laughs> I'm but I felt sure. great for like five hours. Sure. I'm sure not. I'm pretty sure that was not a good idea. Um, but so that, that cultural change has, has now started to permeate. Mm. And mm-hmm. I think uh, you were talking about to pay time off and whether it's a sick day or what we used to joke as a mental health day. I think they're actually the same thing. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that to be more productive, you need to find time away that helps you recognize a time when you're present, right? And when you're actually there, can you be present uh, to the degree that you and your colleagues and the people you're serving demand? So coming out of the pandemic, I mean, talk about a time of really testing leadership in any organization. But when you have to deliver 24-7, uh, when you are at the heart of the crisis, um, I can't even imagine the different types of tests you went through. What were some of the greatest lessons that, uh, for leadership that you took out of this pandemic? Um, and, and what did you realize about yourself during that time? That's a great question. I think um, sounds a little bit sarcastic, but uh, if you're going to go into a crisis, go in with a good team. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to have had a couple of years in the seat to really build a a fantastic leadership team of uh, fellow vice presidents and directors and managers. And having been with the organization, you know, at that time, about 15 years, um, I'd watched us mature and evolve. And I saw some areas where we could do better. And so if you work at Elliott, you've, and you've heard me say this, um, my expectation of you is you know your business. Mm, and nice. it means in all the ways that that can be interpreted. Because it helps you see opportunities. Helps you work with a partner better helps them find places where you could do things more effectively. What do you want to do more of? What do you want to do less of? And I'd had a chance to start that in 2018 and really put it to the test in 2020. Um, So we learned about being nimble, being agile. And for my seat, very important to have clear, understandable, transparent conversations with people. That you would say the same thing in any room you're in. You can't can't speak to your audience uniquely, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You have to tell them the story. Um, you have to make it accessible, and you have to give them some ability to contribute. What could they do to help us do something that seems so insurmountable? Well, what's your, what's your role? How do you contribute? How do we support you? And when you try to do it, how do we course correct when that's not working well or is working well and we want to do more of it? So I think it's really a learning lab, and each interaction with whether uh, it's a fellow executive or it's a frontline nurse or it's the, the fact that you've asked environmental services to clean rooms at a pace that's twice as fast as usual. What are they looking for in your comments? They want to see hope. They want to see a role they can play. And they want to feel that's actually doable. So earlier we were talking about one of the biggest challenges that you have is attracting workforce. But let's take a little more personal um, look at that and what attracted you 
first to go into healthcare? And then what was the siren call to go into leading healthcare organizations? Yeah, so two totally different answers, actually. So I was fortunate my parents had moved to uh, sort of mid-coastal Maine when I was uh, kindergarten, I think. And uh, so I spent almost all of my time in, in that area. On a, uh, my dad worked full-time, and we had a small little family farm. So I learned a lot about sort of biology and nature and these kind of things. And uh, somewhere in, in high school, I think I uttered to somebody somewhere that I— probably wish I hadn't done, that I think I want to be a doctor. Now, this is from a small, <laughs> little rural town of less than 2,000 people in, in the mid-coastal Maine, and, uh, you know, then went on to uh, undergraduate, and then um, it became a reality. Uh, I went to med school at University of Vermont, and then uh, went down to University of Massachusetts for training, and I chose emergency medicine because I thought my particular personality, uh, which I wouldn't say I have ADHD, I have a very solid attention my wife doesn't agree, but I, 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 can, I can definitely pay attention, just not for very long. <laughs> and so that was very attractive to me, that I feel like at a, at a point of service, I could help people in what could be their, their darkest moment, right? Mm. Could I be the right person at the right time to bring the resources either personally or other, other folks mm-hmm. um, uh, with a whole team of nurses and techs and other people? And so I spent five years at uh, University of Massachusetts uh, working as an attending physician. And I found a recurring pattern. I would come into work and uh, my boss or someone else would say, hey, uh, can you look at this? And it was a problem to solve. And I found that I had a bit of a knack for taking a sort of a complex situation and breaking it down as some kind of root cause that I could understand. And then I could figure out, well, how transactionally does that matter to, the, to my fellow physician? And then how does that matter to the nurses and the techs and the people we work with, uh, even the consultant staff? And all, how does that help us do more mission with our patients? So really important to me that I recognize at some point that the reason I was getting asked more frequently is I seemed to deliver something. And then had the opportunity to come up to, to Elliott in 03 and build a whole new group uh, to build emergency medicine. And then what became multiple urgent cares in the community. And again, someone asked me, hey, uh, we've got this problem. Uh, we need someone to really work on medical staff relations. And uh, so I'm sort of the accidental administrator in the <laughs> sense that I didn't, wasn't a career path for me. I never mm-hmm. thought being a hospital CEO was something I was thinking about. And then, you know, over the course of, you know, seven to 10 years, increasing level of responsibility, things you'd like to do. And at some point it clicked in my head that the way I could make the biggest contribution to the community was from a different seat. And what I found, I was particularly skilled at was building a team. I could recognize talent. I could see how the pieces fit together. And I recognize I don't have to have all the answers, but I could put people in a room who definitely do. Uh, and if they don't know, they have the humility to go find it. And so that was what I found I was really good at. And then the board had asked me to serve uh, in 2018. Nice. Um, how do you, hospitals are a business, People know this. How do you balance the needs, all the needs really, but the needs of the patients with the needs of the business? What's your mindset? What are your strategies um, when, you're, when you're thinking about and balancing all of that, knowing that sometimes it may be a little bit out of balance, as it were? Yeah, it's a perennial struggle to try to manage uh, what we talk about, you know, margin versus mission. Mm-hmm. And that's really an and statement. I think it's really an or. Um, so the way I think about it, um, I've had some great mentors over the years, and what I've learned is 
you have to have a coherent, uh, understandable strategic plan. Where are you trying to go? And for the Elliott, and the Elliott as a strong member of Solution Health with our partners at Southern, um, it's to be that comprehensive healthcare resource in our community. And so we think about it a couple of ways. We think about our mission, which is to inspire, heal, and serve. Ooh, and nice. then our vision, right? So our vision, we coined this probably in just as I took the leadership position, was to be your first choice to give and receive care. So to your question about balance, mm. you put the things in appropriate intentional conflict because you have two priorities, those mm. who receive the care and all of their family and support systems and those who give the care. Because nice. a lot of places people say, uh, you know, the patient always comes first. And I think that's actually true. The staff's 1A because they mm. put out them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have a healthcare system. And they want to be um, respected they want to be positioned for success. And they want to understand that no matter what's happening today, we're going to try and do it as best we can. We're going to use our resources as best we can. We're going to make the best decision we can today. We learned that in the pandemic, the comma today is very important because sometimes you just don't know. Mm. The real challenge is, can you recognize what you know and what you don't? And then what do you want to make for different uh, decisions? So that tension we put in our vision statement mm-hmm. That helps you know, inform our strategy for how we do more mission guided by those things. Nice. Um, early on, you mentioned, and we mentioned kind of uh, introducing you, that um, the Elliott had created a partnership with New England College with a, a goal or a purpose of graduating more nurses. Can you talk about that partnership and then other partnerships that you alluded to in the community um, and how those help the community and Elliott be successful? Sure. There's a couple of them. We have... Uh, the mentioned uh, New England College relationship, mm. and it best described as an apprenticeship. So, nice. uh, in various different disciplines, whether it's a, a medical assistant role, or a licensed nursing assistant, or nursing specifically, it's really you become an employee of Elliott, and you're going to school, and you're actually receiving uh, income while you're going to school in partnership with New England College, and then we're going to be able to get you. Uh, to a position where you're a full-time employee of us in grad- graduated responsibility positions, ultimately landing in a nurse. And the likelihood that you stay with us, we think, is high um, because we've seen that when people transition in our organization, it's quite a common story. Someone comes in while they're in college and, and uh, they're a licensed nursing assistant, and then they go on to nursing school and they come back as a nurse, and they go a nurse practitioner. And they're with us for their entire career because they feel like they've been invested in uh, if they want to pay it back. Nice. Mm-hmm. So we have a number of these programs with New England College and then uh, uh, Manchester Technical College as well. And we've got another growing set of pipelines around this apprenticeship type track. Because a big challenge for us, for, particularly for adult, uh, you know, people who are transitioning from one career to another, the switching cost is really high. How do you stop doing one job to train to do another job when that's going to cost you money out of pocket and you've got this gap in income so we're going to solve that problem. And we've been fortunate to compete uh, effectively for some federal grants to help sponsor these programs. Um, on a different note, we're working with um, a number of uh, community leadership groups, including Making It Happen, as well as the uh, Correctional Institution in Valley Street Jail with a multi-million dollar grant on substance use disorder. So how do we as a health system um, work with all of our community partners to to really try to manage and mitigate what is unfortunately an epidemic that was pre-pandemic mm-hmm. and has continued. 
which is opiate use disorder, another substance use uh, disorder. So it's really proud to have won that grant uh, and partnered with the, the community on that, and we're looking forward to uh, launching that work this fall. And that leads into another question that I have for you. So in our September issue, in our healthcare guide of Business New Hampshire magazine, one of the articles explored you know, the unique challenges that rural hospitals are facing. But I want to talk to you about what are some unique challenges that you face sitting in the central of New Hampshire's largest city, um, where you have uh, one of the most diverse populations you're serving, one of the largest immigrant populations you're serving, with diverse languages being spoken, uh, that has been central to the opiate epidemic that we've been experiencing. Uh, and, uh, you know, and also uh, one of the largest populations of unhoused people in the state. What are some unique challenges you face as being in the center of an urban area of New Hampshire? It's interesting. Uh, the rural hospitals clearly have their unique uh, challenges and perspective. Oftentimes it has to do with this size. Mm-hmm. Like the, just the numbers of X or Y that you either have to manage with, that are infrequent or the number of things you need where you don't have a population base to pull from. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Manchester, we have really the other side of the coin, which is that we have um, a very significant de- demand for services, right? And how do we make sure we have all the access points open? And to your point, there's a rather diverse population in Manchester. Uh, I forget how many languages are spoken in the Manchester school system, but it's well over 100 uh, if you include the various dialects. And we experience the same thing because those, uh, those citizens from our community are coming in to see us. So how do we manage everything from, from language uh, challenges and barriers and, and, and work through those? And then cultural barriers. Uh, not everyone is comfortable with uh, the same one-on-one interaction without family support. So how do you work around those things? Um, the other challenges we face are more uh, sort of reflection of society and current state. Uh, you mentioned homelessness, uh, the substance use disorder program or problems um, really run across the entire demographic spectrum. So I don't want to mm-hmm. link those two things artificially. Right. Uh, there are some homeless issues and substance use, but that's not limited to that. Um, I think the other thing we're seeing is that uh, as the population of New Hampshire average age continues to grow and the birth rates are flat or declining, depending on who you talk to, um, the average age in New Hampshire is going up. And so I think one of the things we face at the tip of the spear, if you will, is discharging a patient um, who no longer requires hospital-level services, um, but where do they go? In other words, they, they've sort of exhausted being at home with home support. Can they go to a skilled nursing facility? Can they go to a nursing home? And if you talk to those folks, some of them are 20 and 30% vacant because they can't staff. And so the challenges we face in Manchester is we become a reception center where people from all around New Hampshire uh, are in Manchester. Uh, They come to see us for various uh, uh, clinical services we offer, which is great. But now they're here, and we have a hard time getting them back from whence they came uh, with an appropriate discharge plan. Or if they're going to stay in Manchester, you begin to saturate uh, the local resources. So pretty challenging on a few of those fronts. I'm going to combine a couple of my other questions into the into this one. So we pointed out that before you're one of the few hospitals in the state that has a direct competitor. But what we saw during the pandemic, too, is that hospitals that might have competed for some of the similar um, populations came together. And, and, and I think there's always been some cooperative spirit behind those partners, uh, those relationships, but really dramatically increased. 
I, you know, so my question is with all these different challenges that are facing the community and the hospital being very much central to a, a lot of those issues, how are you working in partnership with the greater community to address it? What is the role the Elliot's playing in that? And how are you reaching out or working with CMC Catholic medical center as you both are serving the similar population at the same time competing for it? Yeah. Uh, interesting. So, uh, I think my predecessors uh, didn't have the benefit of the relationship I have with Alex Walker uh, mm-hmm. from CMC. I, I knew Alex before we were both in our roles. And of course, during the pandemic, um, you know, uh, he's on my voice recognition speed dial, and I'm sure I'm on his. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we, we very early on came to some very easy uh, conclusions, which is that we would do things together whenever possible. Uh, and whatever we were going to do, we wanted to have the same, you know, if you will, solidarity uh, to the city of Manchester, right? Uh, when the early projections early in 2020 were just so scary uh, for how many would be overrun with cases that, which didn't come for almost 10 months, and then it did. Um, we made sure we were in constant contact. Our teams were speaking to each other. So any of the barriers that may have existed uh, in Manchester prior to our tenure pretty much are gone. Second thing we did, um, I was speaking to one of my chief medical officers, and uh, he was struggling just to try to keep up with the amount of information from his colleagues, CMC, St. Joe's, Southern, Parkland, Concord. And I remember working with uh, the hospital association, Steve Onan, and saying, well, we broke it, up, broke it up in regions. So we have the I-93 corridor. So those six or seven chief medical officers would get on a call, uh, sometimes every afternoon for 15 or 20 minutes, and they would just share, here's what I've got today. Here's what I think tomorrow mm-hmm. looks like. Interesting, Matt, no one talked about whether um, it was their resources, it was a collective. Mm, nice. And I think a lot of that spirit of uh, cooperation and how do we do this together is very much still alive. So while we have institutions to run, um, I think uh, whether it's a behavioral health or it's substance use disorder or it's, it's a primary care, how can we collectively serve the community don't over-serve it and sort of over-resource it, but do it uh, most effectively together because we're a not-for-profit charitable trust, just like CMC. Most of the hospitals in New Hampshire are, other than I think three of them. And so we have a duty to, to serve the community and do it as best we can. And part of that means uh, figuring out when to cooperate and when to compete, right? And the cooperation part's a lot harder, but sometimes it's ex- exactly what you need to do. Yeah, speaking back to again your mission, your vision. Yeah, I can almost see you sitting in in meetings, kind of looking at both, going, "All right, how do we do this?" and considering partnerships and and all that. Um, before we wrap today, I want to um, we we talked a little bit about your your past and growing up and, and your education. Um, I read that you were a flight physician as well, and you just smiled. So maybe there's some stories around that. It sounds like an intense uh, work environment for a number of reasons. Can you talk about that experience that you had? Yeah, I think when I was uh, uh, applying out of medical school at residencies, uh, the program at UMass was the oldest in New England, uh, I think only second or third oldest in the country, and it had a flight program, whereas a second-year resident and third-year resident, you would, you would fly in the chopper, uh, one, uh, like a month both years, and then like, what sounded great at the time, every fourth night, <laughs> I laugh as I say that, <laughs> that was crazy. Um, yeah, I, what I thought was really interesting about it was, um, as an emergency medicine physician, I thought, well, this is really what I want to do, right? Um, my goal was uh, to find myself where you couldn't scare me anymore. 
I never quite got there. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> I could get my pulse rate to still go up. Um, but I had some amazing experiences. Worked with just unbelievable, both uh, paid and volunteer EMS crews all over New England. We'd fly to Cape Cod, we'd fly to Connecticut, Vermont, Maine, uh, and you would drive, and it would be like the, the doors would open, and I would, like the light opens as we come in from the parking lot, and they're like, oh, life lights here. Yeah, they are, and don't go anywhere. Because we only added like two, three new people to this this army taking care of a patient, and had some amazing experiences. Um, taught me a lot about uh, teamwork. Taught mm. me a lot about knowing what you know and what you don't know. Yeah, how to access resources. Uh, showed me the sheer power of U.S. Uh, you know health system that you could move someone from. You know, 495, I mean, July week, July 4th weekend on my first flights uh, on 485 with a terrible car accident. And mm. I think 11 minutes later, I was at Mass General. Wow. And uh, you just think to yourself, wow, that was amazingly fast. And this person probably needed it all 11 minutes. Uh, so just interesting things. Um, wonderful experience in my life that I, I look back on now. I spend 20 some odd years and think, did I really well, do that? <laughs> yeah, really, really. Well, and, and as we know, like when the chopper shows up, that's not just, you know, something rather, you know, insignificant or that is serious, majorly life threatening. And, and, you know, you've got, like you said, 11 minutes or less yeah. to, to do a lot as right. it were. And I think it was a responsibility. I think really, I mean, when I was in medical school, when I was applying, I thought, well, this would be really amazing. I get mm. the cool coat and the patch and get to wear a helmet and it, all those sort of <laughs> juvenile ways of looking yeah, at it. Right. And then when you actually got the chance to fly somewhere and realize that they called you and your team specifically mm. and um, it's a real responsibility and you want to take it very seriously, make sure you're as prepared as you can. So I think that was a really, uh, amazing crucible to go through if you will before we wrap you know we've been reflecting on the past um but i want to look to the future um where do you see the needs of the community going how is the elliot changing and evolving where are the investments you're making in the future of both the 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 hospital the system and due to where you're seeing the community needs going yeah um we've done a couple of things um Recently, which are more capital improvements, so uh, we added the Solinsky Center for Cancer Care, which was uh, opened in 2020 in the summer. Uh, and then we just, as you mentioned, uh, opened a brand new uh, renovated emergency department, uh, a fancy new hybrid OR, which brings you know high end like CT scan imaging to the operating room. There's just a couple of examples that our ability to deploy our strategy has helped us deliver enough margin which is our way of saying dollars to reinvest back in the community. So I think we will continue on that model. And I talk to the team a lot about access. And I talk about access in terms of, sure, there's brick and mortar where you drive up and come in to see somebody, whether it's physical therapy or it's a physician visit or wherever it is. Um, there's also access, which is virtual. And I think we saw a lot of signals around how certain cohorts of patients really think virtual is the way to go. And a whole bunch of others who are like, mm, that's part of my uh, set of tools I'll use, but I like being in person as well. So we're seeing mm -hmm. a, a number of those things. So I'll just bring it up. I think you have to be flexible. You've got to be agile and think about what does the community need? Not what you offer, but what do they need? And can you match the two? Because I think it, to your question, 
Manchester and Southern New Hampshire's healthcare needs are going to continue to increase. I think there are a number of other players who will find a place in the market where they uh, are most successful providing access to. But I'm pretty sure the Elliott will find its need to have intensive care units uh, and operating rooms and emergency departments and things that we're uniquely qualified to do as an integrated system. And we'll partner with those who do other things uh, as they see to uh, offer value to the community as well. And as you serve one of the most diverse communities in the state, how do you address issues of equity and making sure that that access exists across the spectrum? So it's interesting. I was talking to our board uh, just last week about our you know, fiscal year 24 goals. And one of them is a second year in a row. We have a significant focus on understanding our patients. So uh, I'll tell you what I told them. I said I spent 20 some odd years uh, in healthcare being indoctrinated, in other words, trained to be agnostic. Um, other than physical characteristics are, um, you know, height, weight, sex, pediatric versus adult patient. We were taught to everyone the same way. Mm-hmm. So I went into emergency medicine partly because of that, because the door was always open and we'll take you regardless of race, creed, color, doesn't make a difference. That's comforting for us. It actually comes up short for the patient because it's actually one size fits all. Now, it's a pretty good one size that we're an organization in a country who will take anybody any time of day at 3 a.m. and will offer you every service we possibly can. But could we be more tailored to the patients we're, we're treating, number one? Number two, do we actually understand their outcomes? I think what we saw in the pandemic was a pretty diverse um, disease burden across various demographics. Uh, African-Americans, uh, more urban populations had a much more significant uh, negative impact from pandemic illness. But we weren't spared in Manchester. The challenge for us is we just don't quite yet understand what that profile looks like, although I'm sure Manchester was not spared some of those challenges. Uh, So one of the things we're looking at is really understanding the data, and so at point of service, can we collect enough information uh, that we can begin to put new processes and procedures in place to best match healthcare to what you need as an individual, while at the same time making sure we're open for everybody, but can you find a nice balance? Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Baxter, thanks for your leadership. Thanks to your team for everything they do for the entire community. Dr. Greg Baxter is president of Elliott Health System. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a production of Granite Media Group.